and you have created us for relationship. And we find both of these yearnings and these hungers in our human heart and in the depth of our human soul. We, we find them so completely filled when our relationship, our primary preeminent relationship above all other relationships is with you and you are the focus of our worship. And we want to expand our knowledge of who you are and how you have revealed yourself to us, Father. Your greatness, your mercy, your compassion, your holiness, all of these attributes. We want to, to know how you have, what you have revealed to us in these areas, Father, in such a way that our heart wells up with the desire to cling to you and, and not just to love you, but to trust you. To trust you so completely in our life that it drives away all fear and all anxiety and all loneliness. And that you do, Father, give us a rock to stand on in all of life. Thank you for the Psalms, Father, and the way that they bless our lives and the way that they teach us how to relate to you and, and, and what they teach us about how we relate to one another. And how there is nothing that we experience in this life that is foreign to you or catches you by surprise. And so as we think about the Psalms this morning, what we ask in the name of your Son, Jesus, with all of our heart, is that you'll give us eyes to see it and ears to hear it. And to turn toward you, Father, with all that we are, and to be healed in all of those, all of those broken places. We're thankful, Father, for these words these texts that come to us from your Spirit. And we pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. If you are visiting with us this morning, we are in a, a series, a study from January to December of all of the books of the Bible, from Genesis all the way to Revelation, in order to understand the story, the one story of the Bible. And if you're visiting with us today, I'm going to show a, a statement up here on the screen that is kind of a, a, a statement that captures the essence of this series and, and trying to understand the Bible as a whole. The statement is, the Bible is not a collection of random stories. It's, it's not a compendium of myths. It's not a collection of philosophies. It is, it is a, a story, one story that is about God, about man, about what went wrong when sin entered into the world and we corrupted God's good creation and what God is doing to put it back together in His Son, Christ Jesus. Now, where are we? I've been out of the pulpit for a, a, a Sunday or so. And just to kind of give us some context of where we are in the story, we have, we have just finished looking at all of those Old Testament prophets that deal with North Israel and South Judah after they have split and become two nations, the one becoming two, and all of those prophets that went to those ten tribes in the north and the two in the south to warn them of the coming judgment that was going to come from God because of their faithlessness that culminated in the destruction of Jerusalem in 587, 586 B.C., and the people were carried off into captivity. Now, there still are some prophets. You'll recognize that we haven't studied all of them. There were some prophets that, that were very much active during the exile in Babylonia. There were all in Babylon. There were also some some prophets that that did their ministry and preached and and wrote their messages during the time when the people were repatriating the country after Cyrus decided to let them come after 70 years of being in captivity. So where we are today, though, is 
as we step out of these prophets, we're going to step into the wisdom literature, that section of the Bible that, that, uh, that, we, that comprises the wisdom books. And I want to give you a simple definition of biblical wisdom, and it's this. And it's very simple, and it's not by any means comprehensive or exhaustive, but wisdom in the Bible is merely making sense of all of life experience in light of the reality of God. Wisdom in the Bible is making sense of light in every experience that you have, in every task that you're confronted with, in every day that you live, all of life, all of the experiences in light of the reality of God. And the Psalms, the Proverbs, which we're going to look at tonight, and Job, Ecclesiastes, the Song of Solomon make up this section of the Old Testament canon. Now again, we're going to be looking at the Psalms, and uh, originally we were going to do two or three sermons on the Psalms because we're talking about 150 chapters, the largest section of Scripture in the entire Bible. But because we are going through the summer series this year in the adult classes over in the fellowship hall on Wednesday nights, going through the Psalms, we're going to compress everything down into one sermon this morning. Look at Proverbs tonight. Let me give you a definition of a Psalm. The Psalms are experiential and intensely personal poems, prayers, and praise for the God who is the supreme value of the universe. Say that again. The Psalms are experiential. We experience their emotions. They, they experience the same kind of emotions that we have. They're intensely personal. Poems and prayers and praise for the God who is the supreme value of the universe. Now, if you've ever spent a lot of time in the Psalms, regarding where, regardless of where you were emotionally, you just know, and maybe you haven't been able to describe it or, or put a word to it, but there's just something about the Psalms. A couple of months ago, Ellen and I received a, an email from a young woman who was uh, spending some time uh, on her job in Tibet and in Cambodia. And while she was in Tibet, she was confronted with a culture completely different from the Washington, D.C. area, uh, Western culture, just completely different, uh, uh, eating, the, the drinking, the living, the speaking, everything completely different, very, very primitive. And she was struggling with trying to uh, perform her job in, in that culture. And one of the things she did as a person of faith was to spend a portion of her day reading the Psalms. And in the email, writing about how the Psalms gave her such comfort and gave her such a real sense of God's presence during this particularly hard time that she was going through while she was in Tibet. This last week, a young man by the name of Will, not from San Antonio, he's from one of the towns nearby, he's driving through San Antonio, uh, running some errands, and his life is in a bit of disarray, his marriage is not in real good shape, and just happened to come by our church, saw the church, was uh, there were some cars in the parking lot, came by, and just wanted to pray with one of the ministers, I happened to be the, the lucky one that got to pray with Will. And as he laid out, we were together for about an hour or so, as he kind of laid out what was happening in his life, we ended up going into Scripture. And guess where we went? We went right into the Psalms. And not only did we read the Psalms together, but we also prayed the Psalms. I taught him how to take Psalm 23 and pray it as a, a personal language for his, or a script for his own prayer life. And he left so much more light in his step and so much happier. Not, not that anything has been solved. But he felt the nearness of God. There's just something about the Psalms, is there not? One of the great psalm writers of our own generation, uh, Eugene Peterson, writes this. He says, if we come to the Psalms looking for a way to develop our inner life, we have come to the wrong place. If we come to the Psalms in search for peak experiences, we have made a wrong choice. 
The psalmists are not interested in human potential. They are passionate about God. The obedience-shaping, will-transforming, sin-revoking, praise-releasing God. He's absolutely right. A second quote from another professor, Clinton McCann, he writes in his book, uh, The Psalms as Instruction, the central affirmation of the Psalter is that the Lord reigns. Let's say that together. The central affirmation of the Psalter is that the Lord reigns. Let's say it one more time. The central affirmation of the Psalter is that the Lord reigns. Why is it that we're comforted at some point when we read the Psalms? It's because we're reminded that everything in our life and everything in the universe universe is under the sovereignty of God. Regardless of what's happening, the Psalms remind us that as the central core affirmation of the Psalter is that the Lord reigns. And as you read the Psalms and their words begin to be etched on our hearts, what we're reminded is that heaven and earth are not two places that far, are far apart, but heaven and earth come together. Paul writes this really interesting verse in Colossians chapter 3, the practical section of his, of his letter to the church in Colossae, chapter 3, verse 10. It's this practical part where he says, you know, do not lie to one another since you've laid aside the old self with its, its practices. Basically, don't, don't have any falsehood. Don't, don't treat uh, human beings the way that you used to in terms of being false with them because you're a new individual. And he continues, and you have put on this new self that is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. Paul is talking about the possession of a new knowledge, a new way of thinking, a new wisdom. And God uses the Psalms along with every other scripture to change our knowledge and understanding of God and everything else around us. Now, in the time that we have left this morning, I I want us to consider three things, and this is very personal to me, three things that, that we've learned and I've learned principally from reading the Psalms through the years. Number one, the Psalms push faith to a personal, relational, and deeper level of spirituality. The Psalms push faith to a personal, relational, and deeper level of spirituality. When you think about Christianity in the Western culture, it has become so much more confessional but not transformational. Meaning that we confess to be a Christian and we confess to believe in Jesus and we confess belief in God and in the Bible, but there's no incarnational evidence. That is, Jesus in our heart of a relationship with God. We talk a good fight, but sometimes, a lot of times, our life does not meet or does not raise up to the point of of, of our confession of our words. And a faith that is not personal, a faith that is not personal with God, is always going to be a faith that is going to be marked by self-centeredness. It's going to be not about God, but about what I can get out of God. We're going to be like those sons in the story of the prodigal son. It's not God and loving God for the sake of God. It's what we can get out of God. It's going to be self-centeredness rather than God-centeredness. And quite frankly, when you read the Psalms, that's not the experience of the psalmist. When you read the Psalms, the emotional landscape, the emotional landscape of the Psalms is messy. It's incredibly, it's, it's messy. There's anger and frustration and disappointment and confusion and lament and grief and joy and the feeling of blessedness and praise and exultation. All of those emotions are there. The noble ones 
And the ones, though, even though God does not give us some ignoble emotions, the ones that we consider not so noble, they're all there. All of our sorrows, all of the joys that we experience are captured. Those most personal and intimate thoughts and emotions are captured in the Psalms. Uh, Why? Why all this messy emotional landscape in the Psalms? Well, one reason is that they anticipate and look to God for the answer and the salvation and the rescue. It's not just the facade of worship and everything positive, but it's everything that I experience being taken to God and looking to God for the answers. The psalmists are encouraging us and teaching us and and cajoling us to walk in their footsteps by burning every bridge that is an answer to those problems and those emotions and those experiences that does not include God. And so that's why we read in Psalm 12, verse 1, Help! It begins with help, Lord. For no one is faithful anymore. Those who are loyal have vanished from the human race. Everyone lies to his neighbor. They flatter with their lips but harbor deception in their hearts. Are we back up a little bit to Psalm 3 as David is going through uh, the Kidron Valley after Absalom has overtaken Jerusalem and, and he's weeping as he goes through the valley. He says, Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. Or Psalm 69. I have sunk in deep mire. I have felt that. And there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and a flood overflows me. You know, when you read the Psalms, it's not all negative but positive. It's not all positive, but there's some negative because that's life. And when you think about it in any other kind of a relationship, whether it's a marriage or a friendship or any other kind of a relationship, what kind of relationship? I mean, just really how deep are you going in that relationship if there's only room for the positive and none of the negative? That you can only talk about what's good because you don't want to say what nobody else wants to hear. You know what they call that in the counseling world? They call that dysfunctionality. The inability to be honest. You can talk about anything except that one elephant that everybody knows about that's in the room. And because no one speaks the truth, nothing changes in those relationships. That is not the Psalms. The Psalms, if nothing, are candid. I'm I'm really indebted to to the writings, to the work of Walter Brueggemann in this area. Brueggemann writes about how the Psalms express the reality of the life of faith and how God moves us and changes us. If you think about it this way, our faith consists always of moving through life, number one, being securely oriented. And then number two, being painfully disoriented. And then number three, being surprisingly reoriented. Now, Walter Brueggemann, what in the world are you talking about? Well, what he means by that is you and I both, as as we're going through life, we're trucking through life and we're pretty comfortable. And we're in this state of equilibrium. We know where we're going. We we have a solid ground that we're standing on. Our orientation in life is secure. We know what's going to happen today and what's going to happen tomorrow. We feel safe. We're inside of our box. We're comfortable. And then the one thing that always changes is change, right? There's nothing in life that's not changing. Something happens. There's an event that takes place that, that, that shoves us to the edge of our humanity. It might be some kind of a serious illness. 
yours or a loved one, or an injury, a serious injury, or the death of somebody that you care for and love very deeply, or some kind of threat to your spirituality or to your finances or, or to your health. And our life at that point goes from being oriented in safety and security to being disoriented. And we begin to ask questions. The questions abound about God. Where is God right now when I need Him? What in the world is God doing? I thought I knew God and how God would respond to this. And the psalmists go through the same thing. But by the time you get to the end of the psalm, the psalmist is surprisingly reoriented to God in a deeper and more profound way. Psalm 73. One of my favorite psalms. Uh, Let's begin with verse 1. Here we have the secure orientation. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. And then disorientation. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no gains in their death, and their body is fat. Now that's a good thing. They are not in trouble as other men. They are plagued like mankind. Therefore pride is their necklace. The garment of violence covers them. Their eye bulges from fatness. Now again, the fatness part, we think of it as as, as something bad. In the ancient world, it was good. That was a good thing. The imaginations of their heart run riot. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They have set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue parades through the earth. So here's the psalmist. He's oriented in a secure way. Oh, God takes care of those that are pure in heart. The God of Israel is good to Israel. Then disorientation, but I look around me. And all of the evil people seem to be prospering, and I seem to be kind of stumbling about, and, and every time I turn around, there's somebody against me. But then he gets reoriented. Verse 21. When my heart was embittered and I was pierced within then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You have taken hold of my right hand. With your counsel you will guide me and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. The nearness of God is my good. And so one of the things that happens as you read the Psalms and you get into the discipline of reading and practicing uh, what you read in the Psalms is that you discover that there's a steadfastness to your faith in your life in times of turbulence. There's a buoyancy when you feel like you're being flooded. There is a, a poise for all of life and all of life experiences. Why? Because of the nearness of God. Number two, the Psalms magnify God in our life, in my life, in your life, in our lives. We live, unfortunately, in a world that is trying to diminish God. And how ironic is that? That we live in a world that was created by God, but we want to say God didn't create it. 
There is a, a really interesting story in Luke chapter 19, the story of the triumphal entry, where Jesus, as he comes in through that golden gate, he cro- crosses the Kidron Valley on that bridge, comes in through the golden uh, through the, the golden gate, and he's going into the temple area. All of the people are laying down the palm branches and laying down their cloaks in front of him, and they're all yelling praise at him and, and, and all the hallelujahs and all of the great things, the adoration, they're giving it to Jesus. And then all of the Pharisees, who really thought that Jesus was, was a... Was a his theology was a mistake and that he was a blight on the, on the heart of Israel. They rebuke Jesus and tell him, you need to rebuke your disciples. They're giving you all the praise. And Jesus says a very interesting thing in verse 40. He says, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. The stones will cry out. Creation, creatures like you and me, we still try to dampen and diminish and, and, and dilute the presence of the Creator in our lives. And, and the Psalms will have none of it. The, the Psalms remind us that keeping the stone silent is part of our job description. It's part of the work that we do every day to keep the stone silent. Why? Because we are the ones that are magnifying God with our very lives. And so we read in Psalm 34, Oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt His name together. Psalm 69, I will praise the name of God with song and magnify. What does it mean to magnify? It means to make big. And magnifying with thanksgiving. And the way that I conduct myself, the way that I live, the way that I speak, the way that I worship, the way that I give, the way that I'm generous, the way that I'm self-controlled and gentle and kind, All of that is bigger than you. It magnifies God in the culture that we live in. Uh, One of the things I've noticed in the Psalms is is that while there is room for complaint, the complaint has a shelf life. Look at this graphic that's up on the screen. One of the things that you see in the Psalm is that they begin with God being very small and the complaint and the trouble that's being talked about is large. It's all that's talked about at the beginning of the Psalm. And so you have complaint and trouble and complaint and trouble. But as you go through that Psalm, what you see is that the complaint and the trouble begin to decrease as God draws near. And the Psalmist draws near to God and it's 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 God. Until finally at the end of the Psalm, what happens? It's praise. It's praise. And on a practical note, you know, sometimes every, every once in a while you get a really, really good question. And sometimes people have asked through the years, I'm going through a really rough time in my life. And how, how do I know that I've, I've prayed enough? I mean, I'm praying, but how do I know that I've prayed enough? How do I know that I have prayed long enough? And the answer from the Psalms, you, you know that you have prayed long enough about that issue when your, your, your prayer ends with praise. Just like the psalmist. I'm up to my neck. I have no place to stand. There are men surrounding me who want to devour me. But at the end, but you are God. And to be near you is my good. And then lastly, and we'll finish here. You know, the problem is, is, is perfunctory prayer. It's perfunctory prayer. Uh, we think sometimes that we, we treat prayer like putting on our socks. You know, it's something that we have to do, and it's ex- expected. And so we do it with a lot of energy, and sometimes we do it with a whole lot of thinking. I mean, could you imagine putting on your socks, you know, where you're really thinking about it and kind of, you know, 
worshipful about it. You know, oh, thy holy foot. Please accept this humble sock. You know. And that's why prayer doesn't work for a lot of us. It's because it's, it's expected. But we don't do it with a lot of energy. Prayer is not like putting on your socks. At some point, your prayer ends with praise. Number three, the Psalms give my life a mission. There are a bunch of royal Psalms, uh, Psalm 2, 28, 20, 45, 61, 110, 132. There's a bunch of them in there. I've not named them all. But all of these are a reminder that, that God is king over all of his creation. And one of the big questions that I always want to ask when we read a royal psalm that is making so much of the fact that God is sovereign, that He is King, that He is Lord, that He is majestic as King, and He rules everything, and there's nothing that His eye doesn't see or His strength can't touch. One of the questions I have is, how do we live as disciples of Jesus of Nazareth with our rugged individualism and our developed Western ideas of democracy within the framework of God as sovereign. And so what is it that God is king? What, what does he do? One example, there are many. One example, Psalm 146. Who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord raises up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord protects the strangers. He supports the fatherless and the widow, but He thwarts the way of the wicked. The Lord will reign, what? Forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. And how's the psalm end? Praise the Lord. God's creation, because of our sin, has become cursed with the thorns and the thistles, right? And the thorns and the thistles have not just gotten into the soil, but the thorns and the thistles have gotten into us. They have gotten into our hearts. And we do evil. And we live with the result of evil coming, evil perpetrated by, by other creatures that have come into God's good creation. And yet God has not kicked the earth to the curb. He cultivates goodness in creation. He cultivates goodness among the thorns and the thistles until all things are renewed. The one who made heaven and earth executes justice and gives food to the hungry and opens the eyes of the blind and raises up those who are broken down and bowed down. He protects the righteous. He protects the strangers. He supports the widow. He supports the orphan. It's interesting that Paul speaks at one point of Christians being poems. God's poems. God's artwork. His, his handiwork. We are His workmanship. You know the scripture. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10. For we are His workmanship. His poema. Created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand so that we could walk in them. The Greek word that Paul uses here, poema, is precisely the word from which we get the English word poem. And while Paul is trying to help the church in Ephesus to know is that God turns us into poems, that, that God gives us as poems to the world, that He makes each of us a psalm. A psalm that points people to Him. And God turns us into these living psalms so that we can declare as the central core affirmation that He is King, that He is Sovereign.
There are so many things that we could talk about in the Psalms, the importance of knowing and remembering our spiritual history, the importance of mediating, uh, mediating, meditating. I should learn how to type. Uh, The importance of meditating on the Word of God, the call to the life of holiness, judgment, all of that. We we, We could spend time talking about that, but suffice it this morning to talk about the Psalms in such a way that they remind us that God desires to be close to us. The Psalms, these poems, these praises, these prayers are given to us to remind us that God doesn't want to be close to us just when things are positive and everybody's happy. That God wants to be close to us even when things are are terrible. And one of the things that the Psalm teaches us is that even when things are terrible, we get more of God in those moments than maybe sometimes in the positive moments. I know that when my kids were growing up, when I was growing up, if I did something that was wrong, my dad's eyes were on me more than they were when things were not were going better. With my own kids, when, when one of them was hurt, one of them was sick, one of them was, was troubled somehow, my eyes were more on him. And the psalmist say we know that, and that's why we speak to God in this way about the things that trouble us. So God gives us the psalms, but He also gives us the Word. And one day that Word became flesh and dwelt among us in such a way that we could see what we as human beings, with all of our emotions, all of our experiences, were really supposed to look like. And His name was Jesus. And that Jesus lived such a life that was in congruence to not just Torah and not just to all of the things that the prophets had said, but all of the things that you read in the wisdom literature. He, was, he lived that wise life of obedience to God and faithfulness and trust to God, even to the point that he willingly and lovingly gave himself up, taking our sins on himself so that we could have his faithful righteousness on us. And find ourselves always in the presence of God. We're going to have a couple of our shepherds up here at the front, the spiritual leaders of our church family. If you've come to that place in your life where you really feel like you need to make a change, the biblical word repentance, that you need to make a change, you need to make a turnaround, you need to go in another direction, and you're ready to confess with your lips that the direction I want to go is to have God as my King and Jesus as my Lord. And you're ready to have your sins washed away. God's Spirit to come inside of you so that He transforms you into His own personal psalm, not only to rejoice in you and to think of you as a beauty, but also to send you out into the world, showing the world a direction back to Him. And to be blessed in His presence for the rest of your life. If that describes you this morning, we want you to come down to the front as we sing this next song and to talk to these shepherds about how that might be done for you this day. Let's stand and praise God together. Lord, the people praise you. Lift you up and raise you. You are the Holy One. 